Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, welcome to the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Now, of course, it's Wednesday, so it's PMQ's Unpacked will be coming up in just a moment, where Tim Shipman and I pause the action from the House of Commons to analyse in real time what it is that Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are talking about. Uh, but first, uh, the columnists panel, and on a Wednesday, we're always joined by Alice Thompson and John Kampfner. Yeah, so this uh, story in the Times today, the Prime Minister poised to appoint a new Chief of Staff, shaking up his Downing Street operation, but he's going to give it to his current Director of Communications, Lee Kane. Now, um, some people will be saying, I mean, we've disappeared properly into the weeds uh, <laughs> to even discuss it, but why does this matter, Alice? Um, this matters because it is a, um, it's a crucial role within Downing Street, though not so crucial because Dom Cummings really is the Chief of Staff in many ways. Um, so he's not going to want someone who is going to um, threaten him in any way. But also because you see what the makeup of the team is, and it's another person who's a pro-Brexit campaign group um, campaigner rather than an instigator. He's someone who's very good at, um, at really you know, going for a campaign and having a message, but not actually very good at following through, I suspect. So, you know, he was good at helping Boris become prime minister and he was good at um, getting the Brexit message through. But actually being in number 10 is all about pulling levers and trying to get stuff done. And I'm just not sure he's that kind of person. He was also the man, wasn't he, who ran around in a chicken suit when he was a journalist, <laughs> which I have done lots of weird things as a journalist, I have to say. So I'm not criticising him in that way, but it is rather astonishing to go from chicken to number 10. He was he was the Daily Mirror's chicken um, chasing around after David Cameron just as a as a chicken. I mean, yeah, I was I once dressed up as Taunton Ted uh, for when I went <laughs> to the Taunton Times, a very hot, you know, attending you know summer fates and that sort of thing. Um, so we've all we've all done it, and we shouldn't be judged for that necessarily, uh, John. But Alice is right, isn't, isn't she? That this job of chief of staff, it's a sort of bang heads together, get things done process job. It's not really a comms job. Yeah, and it is a head-banging job. Um, the issue, therefore, isn't, and the problem isn't or shouldn't be that a prime minister chooses somebody 
uh, who they trust, who they rely on. There's a sort of almost telepathic uh, relationship they have. And when it works, it works really well. And when it doesn't work, it's it's pretty much a disaster. And that, that relates to all countries. And uh, But the issue, I suppose, is what is the, as Alice was saying, what is the tone? What is, what is this government trying to do? And it's interesting that this comes right off the back of the American elections, which you can read in two ways. And he has chosen to read in one particular way. One way is to say that Trump has been repudiated, that Biden has won, that the more the votes are counted, the clearer it is that in the popular vote it's actually was reasonably close, but not that close. Um, and that is this does this mark the high water does the high water mark of populism biden will be putting pressure on johnson both on brexit and everything else to kind of grow up and become more centrist and less populist again so that's one reading the other reading is actually trump wasn't repudiated he got 71 million votes that's a heck of a lot of votes for somebody as 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 dangerous and buffoonish as trump and that has almost reinforced johnson in his view that Biden and people like Biden aren't going to stick around very much and that he can continue down this, in my view, kind of dangerous populist approach. Um, and that seems to be the only reason why why he's appointed, as you say, a campaigner rather than a, um, a kind of competent doer. It also it doesn't sort of necessarily clear. I mean, having spoken to some people both in and around number 10. They said that part of the problem is, isn't, because, you know, he survived so far without actually having someone in the chief of staff role. Lots of people think it's Dominic Cummings, but he's not his senior advisor. There's also Ed Lister, who who did the job for him when he was mayor of London, but he's a sort of floaty senior advisor. And if you just install another, you know, the third person in that um, uh, uh, triangle, if you like, of, of, you know, chief of staff, senior advisor, very senior advisor, at some point somebody's got to call some shots. And if, if they all... And Boris Johnson's not, not always the clearest. I've spoken to people who've worked for him. He's not always very clear about what it is that he wants. And then you've got three different people with three different interpretations of what he wants. It doesn't always make for very sort of clear government, Alice. Well, also you've forgotten there's Michael Gove in the equation as well. And I think he's very influential. And I think part of the problem for this government is that there are a few people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove um, and Don Cummings who actually don't particularly want to have anyone questioning them or taking away any of their power. And that's what happened with the cabinet as well. So it was a disaster with the cabinet in that we had some people who really aren't up to the job put into their positions, partly because they were Brexiteers, but also partly because they just weren't you know, a threat in any way. And I think that's always dangerous when you are too worried that anyone you put in might supersede you or might um, take away part of your power or in any way threaten you, that you have to be grown up enough to see that you want the best. And I just don't see that Lee Kane is the best. I think he's someone who's not going to threaten them, who will do what he's told, who is a sort of slightly um, substandard, if I'm honest, Dom Cummings in some ways. I mean, he's, he's too similar to them all. What you want is someone who is going to knock heads together, as you say, and is actually going to achieve stuff, get things done, and actually speak truth to power and tell them when they're getting it wrong and tell them what they need to do. Say, like, with, you know, um, the whole furrow we had over free school meals, someone should have said, this is not good optics, you know, this is what you need to do. They need to be someone who is willing, actually, to stick their head out of it. And when you go back in past governments, I think the sort of model of a chief of staff was um, Jonathan Powell under Tony Blair, because he was um, a very calm, self-confident person. He wasn't, and he was surrounded by some 
seriously volatile and big egos in people like um, Alistair Campbell and then Gordon Brown and his huge fiefdom over at the Treasury. And yet he had Blair's ear. And of course, it didn't always go well. A lot, a lot of things went, went really badly wrong. But you need that kind of don't mess with me authority type figure at the right hand of a prime minister and not somebody, uh, as is the case with Cummings, pursuing their own agenda or the case with Gove in an elected way pursuing their own agenda. You just want somebody to mind the shop, but in a way that sort of, you know, they will either let you in or they won't. And they're and their sort of decision stands. Uh, as um, uh, maybe we shouldn't be too hard on them, you know, over the weekend, everyone was judging, uh, you know, the, the the special relationship was dead. Joe Biden hates Boris Johnson. He's never going to speak to him. He's going to suck up to Berlin in Paris first. And then lo and behold, who's first on the blower? Uh, across loads of the papers today, Boris <laughs> Johnson does look like he's, um, you know, just taking a call on his birthday from someone. Uh, but um, it turned out Joe Biden did call him first of the European leaders. So did we get it all wrong, John? Um, are we... Are we, do we owe Boris Johnson an apology? Oh, oh, absolutely. I'll be running to do that. Um, uh, no, not at all, Matt. I mean, the uh, the Americans know how to kind of, you know, stroke our heads and make us feel good about ourselves, and they'll continue. They'll continue to do that, but and they'll try to make sure the optics are fine. I'm pretty sure. I, I tell you, I will. You know, I'll wager with you that when he does his. Um, first foreign trips, it will not be to the UK. Because strategically, you've got 27 countries led by Germany with France close behind. And that is, and that will be, with the exception of intelligence and security, important though they are, that is where the action is going to be. And that's where any future administ American administration is going to go. In a way, uh, Boris Johnson's got to get out on that, though, isn't he, Alice? Because he's UK by coincidence, is now hosting the G7 next year and the COP26 climate change talks at the end of the year in Glasgow. And he's invited Joe Biden to both of them. So in a way, it doesn't matter if he goes to Germany before. You know, he's got a, you know, he has got opportunities to put Brexit behind him to some extent, look forward a bit more uh, and focus on the things that they've got in common. Yeah, well, that that's going to be his opportunity. On the other hand, I'm just not quite sure that that anyone in number 10 has thought about that. They haven't thought about the climate change conference. They haven't thought about what they're going to do. Uh, we're going to be so embroiled in, you know, getting out of COVID and out of um, Brexit that we do have to think what we're going to do. And we're very, very good at having heads of state over. And uh, hopefully the Queen will still be there. And we, you know, we know how to do, you know, all the cutlery and the you know the, the, you know, the beautiful uh, taste table uh, as we know john like the germans are very bad at the cutlery i think probably but we just but that that's what our selling point is that's what trump wanted that's what you know lots of mm. presidents do want but i think biden's going to be slightly different from that and i don't think just because he's coming over we can read anything into that um he is probably going to be um, you know, fairly pragmatic about the relationship with Britain now. When Helmut Kohl invited Margaret Thatcher, he was trying to sort of suck up to her and be all nicey-nicey because they had a terrible relationship. And he invited her to um, his uh, country pad. Um, and uh, he, the, on dinner, which, which is a sort of speciality, which he really loves, uh, was cow's stomach. And um, after that, she couldn't touch it, apparently. And after that, the relationship <laughs> went from bad to worse. <laughs> 
Well, you know, let's hope it goes slightly better than that. Uh, let's focus, as we are, you know, focusing on the positive today. Um, Alice, we've spoken many times on a Wednesday morning about particularly the plight of students during uh, lockdown and some positive news today. They are going to be able to come home for Christmas. Yep, if they test themselves, I think they're going to be able to come home and they're going to do it over a couple of weeks at the beginning of December. So they'll have a slightly shorter term, which is amazing, although... It does show how much students have changed because I'm not sure, I mean, as much as I love my parents, I wasn't wildly into coming back for Christmas. It wasn't like we always, you know, at that stage that you you were that close to your parents that you all rushed home. Whereas I think now they really do want to go home. And I think you've got 1.2 million students who are all crammed into halls of residence, not allowed out, who are suddenly all going to be crisscrossing the country. So we are going to have to do something to allow them home. And if a test is it, that's fantastic. And also just a very fact um, that they've been been essentially uh, cooped up uh, during this uh, sort of mini lockdown and they haven't been able to go out and socialise. There's been no um, or very little in-person lectures and that sort of thing. So it does feel like by accident or design they, they should be in the best possible uh, position to come home at the end of um, at the end of this four week uh, lockdown. Um, John, do you think this is this is the government going some way to repairing the damage um, they did with their reputation amongst young people? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for, uh, students and um, I remember, you know, students and in my in my early mid twenties, it was lovely to come home for Christmas. I think, and and that's a kind of fairly safe environment. And yeah, you know, you have a few drinks and whatever, but people are sort of playing sort of silly games and and watching TV, and then by Boxing Day having arguments and stuff, which is all kind of normal standard fare. What What's more interesting in uh, a COVID setting is New Year. Um, so if they get the numbers down and the numbers are always a couple of weeks behind, so when, if, or when lockdown ends at the beginning of December, you'll only see the numbers really coming down middle of December. And then everybody will think, oh, great, happy days. And, and then everybody, not just young people will get completely legless on new year <laughs> and in the period in between and parties happening, even, you know, break, you know, which comes to Alice's, um, column, people interpreting the rules in, in the way they wish, um, and you will see, I, you know, depending on what happens with the vaccine, I, I reckon quite a sharp spike in the figures in early mid-January, and that will again lead to a, a kind of push-pull about what kind of restrictions in January, and it'll be even more frustrating and difficult for people then, because they'll say, well, hold on, we've got the vaccine coming up. Uh, yeah, Alice, I thought your column was really interesting today. It completely chimed with the, the, the focus group we did a few weeks ago with... Um, swing voters who who still gave the government actually a bit of the benefit of the doubt, thought that Boris Johnson was doing, you know, nobody would want to be in that position. Uh, but they were basically picking and choosing their own rules. Yes, I'll wear my mask, but I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm all right to see my girlfriend, or I'll probably still go and see my mum and all my children, you know. Um, and we're, everyone is making, basically making up their own rules. I suppose the key thing is, as long as people are doing something, that's better than them going wild uh, at this stage. Yeah, I actually think it's it's a great development in some ways that we're taking responsibility and we're not just listening to the government, even though I mean, it is impossible because they talk in so many metaphors, particularly Boris Johnson with bugles and a lot of fighting metaphors that it's hard to understand exactly <laughs> what he means. But we are now taking back control to a certain extent and working out what it does mean. So the mask take up is very high now. Um, people are meeting outdoors. They've understood that point. They are washing their hands more. And there is the sense that, you know, 72% say they support this lockdown, but they are breaking it in small ways. And that's what's happening. We're not rioting like they are in Italy or in Spain. What we're saying is we'll take what 
what what we think will work and we do get the message but some of it is slightly ridiculous like the sense that you know you're allowed to go fishing but you're not allowed to go angling or (laughs) there's there's all sorts of bizarre bits of it that we're just not really listening to although it does feel like that sort of you know um uh parlor game that the the cottage industry of oh so it means i can take my grand skydiving but we can't go you know can't (laughs) sit in a sauna and all that it does feel like even that is slightly you know it's a bit like you know sourdough and zoom quizzes we're a bit over that now in the second uh, in the second lockdown that was Alice Thompson and John Camp for their picking over the news. Up next, PMQ's Unpacked. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and now it's time to bring you the big thing from my Times Radio show. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. And here he is, Tim Shipman. Um, Boris Johnson's, I mean, just to give an update on the most important things, um, his hair is becoming an increasingly intriguing construction, I've noticed of late. Well, he had it cut a few weeks ago, didn't he? But it's sprouting uh, wings again. There's a kind of weird sweep around the back. It's just slightly Trump-esque, one might say, in the way that's been arranged. But it's still it's still a, a good old shock of blonde hair. I think there's many men of 57 or whatever age he is who'd be more than happy <laughs> to have that atop their heads. OK, but let's concentrate on the uh, slightly more important matters in, in hand uh, then. Um, uh, Keir Starmer, it's difficult to know what he would... So most weeks it's sort of fairly obvious what Keir Starmer should be going at, even if he doesn't always. It's difficult to know what he'll do this, this I'll time. I'll be perfectly frank. I haven't the blindest idea at all what he's going to have a go at this week. You know, there are, there are doubtless... Sort of, you know, he will probably press the PM on the detail of what he's planning next and and how this student thing's going to operate. And I'm sure there are problems with uh, lots of what the government's doing. And he'll be able to find uh, the sort of minute, uh, uh, you know, technical details that will cause some difficulties. And if Boris Johnson is blindly expecting just to answer every question with "there's a vaccine, hurrah," then he'll probably find that he has a quite difficult day. Uh, but equally, there's a vaccine, hurrah, will probably get him out of jail at least twice. And um, <laughs> uh, Keir Starmer has a pretty difficult job today to, to achieve any cut through, I would think. 
Uh, I think you could well be right. So just looking at the House of Commons, uh, Boris Johnson uh, is obviously at the dispatch box, sat quite a long way along the front page, it has to be said, he's Matt Hancock. Uh, yes, more than two, more than the sort of requisite official distance. It's almost like there's a bit of uh, bit of clear blue water there between Downing Street and the Department of Health. I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, we're just waiting for Boris. There's been a couple of uh, backbench contributions. Ruth Cadbury is a Labour MP and Fiona Bruce is a Conservative MP. Uh, just ask some backbench contributions. We'll, we'll, we'll listen in to all of the backbench contributions to Bring you, basically, we'll cut out the boring toting ones and we'll bring you any uh, news uh, lines on that from the House of Commons uh, after the 12.30 uh, news. Um, what do you make, um, just quickly, Tim, of uh, news of a possible new Chief of Staff in Downing Street? Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I wrote uh, about a month ago that they were looking for a new Chief of Staff um, and various people told me, no, no, this is completely untrue. The Prime Minister's not looking for a new Chief of Staff and now his Director of Communications, Lee Kane, seems like he might be stepping up key ally of Dominic Cummings and people who thought Boris Johnson might be softening his approach will look at that and think perhaps not. OK, we can now go live to the House of Commons. It's Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join with the Prime Minister for his comments about Jonathan Sachs? Can I also send all of our thoughts to those affected by the terrible events in Saudi Arabia uh, this morning? Um, can I welcome the victory uh, of President-elect Biden and Vice-President-elect Harris, a new era of decency, integrity and compassion in the, in the White House. And can I also welcome the fantastic news about a possible breakthrough in the vaccine. It's early days, uh, but this will give hope to millions of people that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Mr Speaker, today is Armistice Day, and I'm sure the whole House will join me in praising the remarkable work of the veterans' charities such as Help for Heroes and the Royal British Legion. Like many other charities, Help for Heroes has seen significant drop in its funding during this pandemic, and they're now having to take very difficult decisions about redundancies and keeping open recovery centres for veterans. So can the Prime Minister commit today that the Government will do whatever it can to make sure our armed force charities have the support that they need so that they can carry on supporting our veterans? Prime Minister. Uh, yes, indeed, Mr Speaker, and I, I echo entirely what uh, the Right Honourable Gentleman says about Help for Heroes. It's a, a quite remarkable charity and does wonderful things for, for veterans. And it, these, uh, in these difficult times, uh, many charities are, of course, uh, finding it tough. Uh, and uh, I, in addition to uh, what the Government is, is doing to uh, support charities through uh, cutting VAT on their, on their, on their uh, cutting business rates on their premises and cutting uh, VAT uh, on their shops. Mr Speaker, I would also urge everybody, wherever possible, to make online contributions uh, to charities that are currently struggling. Well, we weren't quite sure what Keir Starmer was going to go for. He went for, aren't charities nice? Uh, he did. Uh, one wonders whether he has evidence that something bad is happening to these charities and he's just teeing up Johnson uh, to say they're wonderful before telling him why he's not doing enough for them, but we'll see. I mean, it is really noticeable that, you know, if you've tried to get a poppy, if you actually wanted to get a hold of a poppy, it's quite, it's been quite difficult because there are, you know, there obviously aren't people out uh, collecting um, and, you know, we've all gone cashless apparently as well, so even if there was, it's quite difficult um, to know. So, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of charities who are, who are suffering at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's been a difficult time and um, lockdown doesn't make that any easier because uh, a lot of the places where you can go... Um, uh, to buy things in shops or to have um, money drummed up at tube stations and the like, there's just not happening at the moment, and a lot of charities are on, on their uppers. Um, the government has done some stuff for them, but I suspect we're about to find out that they haven't done enough. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's go back to Keir Starmer in the comments. I thank the Prime Minister for his 
replied, the truth is the Chancellor's package for forces charities was just £6 million during this pandemic, and that's just not sufficient. Can I ask the Prime Minister to reconsider that support on their behalf? Because at the same time, we've all seen this weekend that the government can find £670,000 for PR consultants. And Mr Speaker, that's the tip of the iceberg. New research today shows that the government has spent at least £130 million of taxpayers' money on PR companies, and that's this year alone. Does the Prime Minister think that that's a reasonable use of taxpayers' money? Uh, let's just jump in there, because I think there's um, something worth um, unpacking. You would never have heard uh, Jeremy Corbyn making a plea for funding for forces charity. Precisely the point I was about to make. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's interesting. If you're going to choose your turf as the leader of the opposition, it's it, it you know it always matters what it is, um, and it's very symbolic that he's gone. You know, talked about uh, Remembrance Day. Jeremy Corbyn would far more likely have asked questions about um, climate change protests than he would about um, uh, Remembrance Day. Um, but equally, you know, Starmer there, it's an old trick to, to pull on, you know, wasteful spending on PR. Um, and a pretty decent example was presented to him on a plate by the Sunday Times at the weekend where... Uh, I mean, this is this story. I mean, sometimes you think, OK, the government does need some PR. You know, yeah. a lot of it is communications. But this story from the Sunday Times, but Gabriel Pogger, your colleague at the Sunday Times, is extraordinary. Just explain for people who, who, who well, don't. Well, so the head of uh, the government's sort of end of the vaccine uh, battle um, has spent 670 grand on PR. Now, I struggle to imagine what necessary PR <laughs> there is for a vaccine organisation because vaccines are just good news. <laughs> they kind of, the story kind of tells itself. It's not like you need lots of people earning 150 grand to phone up journalists and say, look, I've got a great story for you, this this vaccine thing, it's really good. Um, it's a bit you know, like I think spending, the media got there on their own. It's a bit they? like spending £670,000 on sort of PR for David Attenborough or something. Something that's yeah. universally popular uh, already. Is it, Kate Bingham is the is the woman concerned who yeah, was put in charge of the vaccine task force and then brought in her own PR consultants. But uh, Keir Starr making the point it's £130 million uh, so far spent on PR companies compared to £6 million so far for forces charities. So not those uh, those two issues together. Let's see how the Prime Minister responded. Uh, Mr Speaker, I think he's referring to the Vaccines Task Force, and after days in which the uh, Labour Party has attacked the Vaccines Task Force, I think it might be in order for him to pay tribute uh, to them uh, for securing uh, 40 million doses. And by the way, the, ca the, the, the expenditure to which he refers uh, was to help raise awareness of vaccines, to fight the anti-vaxxers, uh, Mr Speaker, and to persuade the people of this country, 300,000, to take part in trials without which we can't have vaccines, Mr Speaker. So I think you should take it back. Here's Starmer. Oh, there we are then. It wasn't Kate Bingham's uh, PR. It was PR to persuade us all to have a vaccine. Uh, I'm not sure that's 100% accurate, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but obviously, clearly, it's, a, it's a, a good thing to take on the anti-vaxxers. And the government at the weekend announced that, you know, they've done a deal with some of these... Um, social media companies to do precisely that and take down some of this stuff that's uh, very damaging. Um, uh, one of my colleagues would know the detail better than I do, but I, I think that, uh, it, that that's not the full story that the Prime Minister has just told at the dispatch box. It's interesting, well, the front of the Daily Mail today, male vaccine poll, UK says yes to jab, but you go first, Boris. The they, top line, they say, is three and four Britons would take the Covid vaccine. If you dig into it a bit further, it's not quite... It's, it's a, People no, there's some decent-sized numbers would not want to take it. And you need 80% take-up rate to get the sort of, you know, to use that 
hackneyed old phrase, herd immunity. Um, and the other thing that's quite worrying that's been happening is that you've seen um, rates for MMR and other jabs dropping because the NHS is busy dealing with COVID. So you've now got, you know, potential measles outbreaks as well amongst kids. Um, this is going to be a theme that's going to run and run over the next year. Well, let's see. I mean, given that actually Keir Starmer kicked off his, his many uh, opening remarks, uh, some of them, apart from Jonathan Sachs and Joe Biden, were welcoming the vaccine, which I suspect he'll now repeat. Mr Speaker, nobody's attacking individuals. Everybody's supporting the vaccine. £130 million, Prime Minister. There's a real question about the way that contracts are being awarded, about basic transparency and accountability. And I know the Prime Minister doesn't like that. This is not the Prime Minister's money, Mr Speaker. It's taxpayers' money. The Prime Minister may well not know the value of the pound in his pocket, but the people who send us here do, and they expect us to spend it wisely. Let me illustrate an example of the government's lax attitude to taxpayers' money. Earlier this year, the government paid about £150 million to a company called Iandal Capital to deliver face masks. Can the Prime Minister tell the House how many usable face masks actually provided, were actually provided to NHS workers on the front line under that contract? Uh, Mr Speaker, we're in the middle of a global pandemic uh, in, in which, this, uh, which this government uh, has so far secured and delivered 32 billion items of personal protective equipment. And yes, uh, it is absolutely correct, Mr Speaker, that it's been necessary to, uh, to work with the, with the private sector, with uh, manufacturers who provide equipment uh, such as this, some of them more effectively uh, than others, Mr Speaker. But it's the private sector that in the end makes the PPE. It's the private sector that, pr that provides the testing equipment, Mr Speaker, and it's the private sector that, no matter how much the party opposite may hate them, it's the private sector that provides the vaccines and the scientific breakthroughs, Mr Speaker. I'll just pause that there. I, w I wonder to what extent this does hit home. Is, is saying, you know, the public is concerned about whether or not the contracts were properly awarded, is that what people are talking about down the dog and duck? No, but I've were just had... Were to be a, open? No, no, I think, I think you're right to be sceptical about whether any of this is going to particularly cut through. But um, I have just had a WhatsApp message from a former minister saying, um, you know, this is damaging because uh, wasting public money, you know, does, does cut through with the public. Um, and the other argument that Starmer might make, talking about Lee Kane as we were earlier, he's the guy who's shaking up Whitehall and sacking lots of civil service press officers. What appears to be happening is that they're shaking up the, you know, the government's media operation and then bringing in a bunch of highly paid um, external consultants to do some of the same work. Um, and that you know, is also a potential attack line. More damaging, possibly, and we'll see if Keir Starmer comes on to this in a sec, is the allegation of cronyism. Uh, and this, not just that money is, but, you know, lots of people could say, well, OK, you, of course, in the heat of the pandemic, you push money out the door to try and buy up everything you can. In, in, in an emergency, not everything will be spent perfectly. But then when it turns out that it's Tory donors, friends of friends, you know, the fact that uh, the two, the the test and trace and uh the vaccine task forces are both run by the wives of Tory MPs all that that sort of sense of you know chumminess and cronyism it, it does start to stick after a while I think it does and it's the same with every government you know you only have to think back to the Blair government where all their mates got all the quango jobs um it it's the same with all governments but uh, I mean, I have to say, knowing some of the people who are regarded as cronies who've done, done some of this work, they were sort of called up in an emergency in March and said, can you help, please? Um, a lot of them haven't actually made that much profit from some of this stuff, and they're now seeing their reputations <laughs> reduced by the likes of you and me. Um, but rightly so. We need, to, we need to stay on top of this stuff. Um, cronyism and wasting money are two 
grand themes that all opposition leaders can score points with. Um, and there's a few open goals here. Somebody's just texted in, wasting public money on Tory cronyism definitely does matter. So there we are. It does hit home. Let's go back to the comments. The answer is none. Exactly. Not a single face mask at a cost of £150 million. Mr Speaker, that's not an isolated example. We already know that consultants are being paid £7,000 a day to work on test and trace, and a company called Randox has been given a contract without process for £347 million. That's the same company that had to recall 750,000 unused Covid tests earlier this summer on safety grounds. And there's a sharp contrast between the way the government sprays money at companies who don't deliver and their reluctance to provide long-term support to businesses and working people at the sharp end of this crisis. The, the Chancellor spent months saying that extending furlough was, these were his words, not the kind of certainty that British businesses or British workers need, only then to do a U-turn at the last minute. Yesterday's unemployment figures show the cost of that delay. Redundancies up by a record 181,000 in the last quarter. What's the Prime Minister's message to those that have lost their jobs because of the Chancellor's delay? Prime Minister, Mr Speaker, I, with great respect to the uh, right honourable gentleman, uh, he knows full well uh, that the furlough programme has continued throughout uh, this pandemic. Uh, it went right the way through to October. It's now going through uh, to March. It's one of the most generous programmes in the, in the world. Uh, 80% of income supported by uh, this government. A, an overall package of £210 billion, Mr Speaker, going in to support jobs, families uh, and livelihoods throughout this country. I think this country can be very proud of the way we've looked after the entire population uh, when, when we, and we are going to continue to do so. And he should bear in mind, Mr Speaker, that the net effect of those furlough programmes, all the uh, provision that we have made, is disproportionately beneficial for the poorest and neediest in society, which is what One Nation Conservatism is all about, Mr Speaker. Uh, the thing that strikes me there, Mr Chairman, is the, the sort of if, if headline inflation. The, the numbers that, that Keir Starmer starts off talking about, are, you know, he, he started off with... Was it, um, how much was it that's given to Kate Bingham? Six hundred seventy thousand for PR. Then he got to one hundred fifty million on a on a, a, a mask contract, which didn't produce any masks. Boris Johnson comes back and says they spent two hundred and ten billion pounds on the economic package. And part of you thinks, well, I know we shouldn't be wasting one hundred and fifty million pounds, but it's not a great surprise. This is, is pennies it? down the back of the sofa. And I mean, you know, Boris Johnson, to be fair to him, was right there to. Uh, hit him with the full scale of the numbers, that the argument he might have made a little bit more explicitly is, yes, look, some money's been wasted. At the start of this thing, we didn't know what we were confronting. We needed to buy up every conceivable vaccine we could. We needed to chuck money at anyone who said they could get this PPE. Don't forget, you know, back in March and April, PPE was in such short supply and it was a national scandal that they were failing to get hold of it. And they were chucking money at anyone who was, uh, you know, and if that means losing 100 million quid, uh, on the off chance of keeping nurses supplied with plastic gowns, then, um, you know, I think he could be more explicit. I think the public sort of reasonably understand, you know, you bet back as many horses as you can and you hope that some of them make it make it round the course. And that's, you know, in a sense was what he was saying there. But I think he could always be slightly more uh, upfront that, and explicit about more. it. OK, let's go back to uh, Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister must know that because the furlough wasn't extended until the last minute, 
thousands of people were laid off. And the figures tell a different story. Redundancies, as I say, record high, 181,000, 780,000 off the payroll since March. ONS saying unemployment is rising sharply. So much for putting their arms around everybody. The trouble is that the British people are paying the price for the mistakes of the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. If they'd handed contracts to companies that could deliver, public money would have been saved. If they'd extended furlough sooner, jobs would have been saved. If they'd brought in a circuit breaker when the science said so, lives would have been saved. Let me deal with another mistake. The Chancellor has repeatedly failed to close gaps in support for the self-employed. Millions are affected by this. It's bad enough to have made that mistake in March. But seven months on, the Institute of Fiscal Studies says the scheme remains, their words, wasteful and badly targeted for the self-employed. The Institute of Directors, many self-employed continue to be left out in the cold after seven months and so many warnings. Why are the chance of the Prime Minister still failing our self-employed? Unquestionably, this pandemic has been hard on the people of this country, and unquestionably, uh, there are are people who have have suffered throughout the pandemic and people whose whose livelihoods have suffered. But we have done everything that we possibly can uh, to help. And as for the self employed, Mr. Speaker, 2.6 million of them have received support uh, at a a, a cost of £13 billion. uh, Quite right, Mr. Speaker. We've also, of course, as he knows, uprated. Universal credit. That will continue uh, until next year, Mr. Speaker. Uh, he now champions universal credit, by the way, uh, and calls for it, uh, to, its uprating to be extended. He stood on a manifesto, Mr. Speaker, to abolish universal credit. Uh, Kirsten, I'm a little bit confused by that um, uh, in the House of Commons. The, the... Um, and uh, Boris Johnson still trying to hang Jeremy Corbyn's last manifesto uh, around his neck. It is interesting, that this self-employed issue, and we shouldn't forget just how unusual it is for a leader of the Labour Party to be berating the Tory party for not being on the side of entrepreneurs and the self-employed. Yeah, there are times in the last 20 years where you could have switched the two sides around and it would have sounded equally plausible. Um, uh, I thought what Starmer did there was quite interesting. He he kind of he he's built an argument through the questions in a way that he hasn't always managed to pull off uh, uh, week by week. And he's he's done a lot of specifics, and then he made that sort of big argument, which we will hear time and time again. I think the one thing that probably has stuck is this idea that Boris Johnson has been too late to do things. Um, and you can make that argument about lockdowns, and you can make that argument about furlough. Um, again, if Boris Johnson was being honest, he'd say, I always wanted the Treasury to chuck all the money at furlough. It was persuading my Chancellor <laughs> that was the issue, and it was only really when I overruled him uh, a week or so ago that it happened. Um, but I doubt we'll hear that answer. Yeah, no, I thought that, that line about how if he'd acted earlier, uh, public money could have been saved, jobs could have been saved, lives could have been saved, and that, that's essentially the core argument that Keir Starmer's making. Let's see if he, if he returns to that theme in his last question. Speaker, the Prime Minister just doesn't get it. I know very well that the self-employment income support scheme has been extended, but the Prime Minister must know that that scheme simply doesn't apply to millions of self-employed people. They've been left out for seven months, and there's a real human cost to this. This week on LBC, I spoke to a self-employed photographer called Chris. He said to me, our industry has been devastated. There's three million of us that have fallen through the cracks. Our businesses are falling, absolutely falling, and crashing each day. He asked me to raise that with the Chancellor. I'll do the next best thing. What would the Prime Minister say to Chris and millions like him 
who are desperately waiting for the Chancellor to address this injustice. I'm not sure how Boris Johnson feels being described as the next best thing to Rishi Sunak. No, but also, interestingly, we were just talking about Starmer and Corbyn. That's the Jeremy Corbyn question. Some yes. fella called Chris who wants his question I answering. Sp- I spoke I've to a man called Chris. On some station you've never heard of. Um, <laughs> and you don't yes, need to yourself answer this Prime Minister from this man called Chris. I mean, we're back to week one of Jeremy Corbyn. So. Although, although Jeremy Corbyn would normally kick off uh, PMQs with this sort of thing. Quite. Instead, this is the massive crescendo. The from... massive crescendo as ever from, from Keir Starmer. Um, maybe we ought to drop him a note on how to structure his questions better. Let's hear Boris Johnson respond. Mr Speaker, what I would say to Chris and what I say to the uh, right honourable gentleman and to, and, to the, and to the whole country is the best way to get his job working again, the best way to get this country back on its feet is to continue on the path that we are of driving the virus down. And I'm grateful, I'm grateful to the people. This is a weakness, Mr Speaker, since we entered into uh, the tough autumn measures that we're now in. I'm grateful to the people of this country for the sacrifices that they're making. And uh, I'm particularly grateful to the people of, of Liverpool. Uh, and, uh, and elsewhere who are now taking part, tens of thousands of people in Liverpool, taking part in the mass testing work that's going on there. And it's fantastic news that we now have the realistic prospect of a vaccine, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, but and science has given us uh, two big boxing gloves, as it were, uh, with which to pummel uh, this virus, but then neither of them uh, is capable of delivering a knockout blow on its own. And that's why uh, this country needs to continue to work hard, to keep discipline and to observe the measures that we've put in. And I'm grateful uh, to the party opposite, grateful for the support uh, that they're now giving uh, for those measures. Uh, That is uh, the way to do it, Mr Speaker. Hands, face, space, follow the guidance, protect the NHS and save lives. Well, that, that was a jumble of uh, words and phrases. We, I mean, it was a jumble, but it was sort of effective, wasn't it? The, t- the two big boxing gloves will probably make the news clips later. Um, and uh, the, the collector's item of hearing Boris Johnson praise the people of Liverpool um, <laughs> 15 years after he was forced to go and uh, apologise to the people of Liverpool uh, on bended hand and knee um, was uh, particularly special. I mean, I think, you know, Starmer made a decent fist of building an argument for four questions and then it sort of petered out again. Um, This is quite often what we see from Starmer. Um, And any PMQs uh, where the leader of the opposition doesn't win is a win for the Prime Minister. And I think uh, Boris Johnson will toddle off home reasonably content. Yeah, he does seem to have dealt with almost all of that. Uh, uh, Just a sec, we'll go um, and hear from Ian Blackford, the leader of the SNP. But we were talking about, in Dish United Kingdom, what the situation was for students in Wales. Some breaking news. Some students at Welsh universities will be asked to undergo rapid coronavirus testing before they go home for Christmas. Uh, They will also, uh, universities will also end the majority of in-person lessons in the week ending December the 8th, allowing time for students who test positive to isolate for 14 days before reuniting with their families. So quite similar to uh, the situation in England. And we'll be talking more about that uh, after the uh, 12.30 news. Now let's hear from uh, Ian Blackford, the leader of the SNP. Ian Blackford, Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And can I associate myself with the remarks of the Prime Minister on the uh, death of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs? And of course... This being Armistice Day, that we commemorate the day 102 years ago in the 11th hour of the 11th month when the guns fell silent, and all those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice in conflict since then. And of course, I would wish to send our best wishes to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in winning the election in North America and look forward to the leadership that they will show on issues of climate change and the issue of fighting back against COVID, amongst other things. Mr. Speaker, the Office of National Statistics figures published yesterday demonstrate what the SNP have been warning about for months, that the UK 
faces a growing Tory unemployment crisis. It is now beyond doubt that the Chancellor's last-minute furlough U-turn came far too late for thousands who've already lost their jobs as a result of Tory cuts and delays and the dither that took place. UK unemployment has now risen to 4.8%. Redundancies are at a record high and nearly 800,000 fewer people are in employment. To support those who have lost their incomes, will the Prime Minister now commit to make the £20 uplift to universal credit permanent and extend it to legacy benefits so that no one, no one Prime Minister, is left behind? Uh, let's hear uh, Boris Johnson's reaction Minister, to that. Well, uh, Mr Speaker, I'm delighted that the uh, right honourable gentleman of the Scottish Nationalists is now supporting uh, universal credit uh, because he was opposed to it at the last... Uh, at, at the last election. Uh, yes, of course, that uplifting uh, continues, Mr Speaker, until, until March. And, and, I'm, deli and I, I'm delighted uh, to say that, uh, that the furlough scheme is being extended right the way through uh, to March as well. And that will support people across our whole United Kingdom, protecting jobs and livelihoods across the whole UK in exactly the way that he and I would both want. Uh, big takeaway from that, uh, Tim Shipman, is that Boris Johnson seems to have caught up with uh, both Labour and the SNP's policy on universal credit. His, his now go-to comeback is, well, you wanted to scrap it altogether and now you like it and you want it to be more generous. Yeah, um, but it's interesting. Um, Blackford always goes on the economy and I think that this this issue of furlough, I mean, one hears it a lot sort of anecdotally, um, that companies were laying people off because they thought furlough was ending and then it came back. Um, and you wonder how many people are in that position. I know a lot of MPs are getting that in their inboxes. Um, and it perhaps just knocks a little bit of the shine off Rishi Sunak's year that um, uh, a lack of clarity on that for a period has probably cost a load of jobs. And I think in the real world that that probably has a bit of cut through. It. And it's certainly a bruise which uh, the SNP have been pretty successful in punching. And actually, it's slightly more pointed. Um, I mean, you, uh, attack attacking um, you know on the specifics and pounds and pence in people's pockets, rather than the slight meandering thing we had from Keir Starmer. You know, starting off with forces charities, um, uh, and then a bit on the economy, and then ending with somebody who phoned into a radio station. Well, I think it works if you sort of build up slowly, and then you build up to a, a crescendo. Starmer often doesn't ever quite get to the crescendo. And um, to be completely cynical, it's a crescendo which normally gets you on the news. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we say this uh, every other week, don't we, that um, he doesn't quite do enough to do that. Um, you know, and if you talk to his people, they're building an argument, they want him to look credible, they want to build the argument that Boris Johnson mucks about and doesn't do things quickly enough. Um, and that may all begin to enter the public consciousness, but I doubt it's going to enter the public consciousness as a result of uh, Prime Minister's questions very often. Um, and ultimately, as we said right at the top of this, um, uh, in two years' time, does any of this make any difference? I think that's uh, unproven at this point. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.